When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Due to the mom brain issues we've been discussing, a million demands on you, a million different priorities, it can really be helpful to ask yourself, all right, what really matters to me? Let me figure out what really matters to me and then let me make choices about what I'm doing every day consistent with what really matters to me. You're listening to Elise Dobrow DeMarco on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T. Desk. 
com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator. And we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis, how Praxis sponsors this podcast. They offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy. And Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about. Yeah, Diana, I started out with Stephen Hayes Act Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know, really into ACT. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course opportunities. Um, The one that really sticks out to me is Lou Lasbigato's Feedback Enhanced ACT course, which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult ACT concepts and then in-depth learning with practice. That grew my muscles as a, a brand new clinician so much. So if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out, Praxis Continuing Education. I'm here with Debbie to talk about a new book called Mom Brain, Proven Strategies to Fight the Anxiety, Guilt, and Overwhelming Emotions of Motherhood and Relax into Your New Self. The author, Elise Dobrow DeMarco, is a repeat guest. We had her on for episode 86 when she was still writing the book, and I'm so excited that I had the chance to bring her back on. Yeah, she's great. It's so nice to have her back on. And I think one of the things I really value about her work is just the validation of how overwhelming it can be. I think just being a parent, especially if you're a new-ish parent, you know, it's there's just a lot of pieces to it and it's quite taxing and you're sleep deprived. But then also when you're trying to juggle that, juggle parenting with all the other demands of life and just how, you know, it's wonderful, but it's also definitely has its stressors and can feel a bit overwhelming at times. Just a bit. (laughs) Just a bit. Well, and I was kind of thinking to myself as I was listening, she talks about when you get mom brain and and it just almost feels like you're not quite as sharp as you used to be. And I, I, it reminded me of a memory when I was working as a parent of young children and I was working on an interdisciplinary medical team and we had a speech pathologist come in to a group I was leading and the people in the group, a lot of them had a cognitive impairment of some kind, a brain injury or something like that. And the so the speech pathologist was giving all these compensatory strategies for, you know, when you have memory problems or you're feeling overwhelmed. And I think of all the people in the group, I was the one there like taking notes. And I was kind of like, yes, you know, you have to have a system to stay organized and kind of like write things down so that you don't forget because you can't really rely on your memory. And I think it was really an indicator of how I was just so taxed and overwhelmed that I felt like I needed it as much as anybody because there's just so many pieces to keep track of and it does feel difficult. Yeah. And that's, I love what Elise does in this book and in her work more generally is she takes different evidence-backed interventions and strategies from all over psychology, but bringing them in and translating them to be really applied and and useful in this time of life when things are just really overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me as I was listening is it's it's helping me connect the dots with a book I'm reading right now that we're going to have to talk about again on the podcast another time. It's called 4,000 Weeks. 
Time Management for Mortals. It's by Oliver Berkman. And it's, I love this book. If you're looking for a time management book that really cuts to the heart of the matter, this is it. Because what he writes about in this book is how time really is a limited resource. And I think sometimes we feel like self-critical when we can't do everything under the sun. Like maybe we're lazy, maybe we're not efficient enough, but the truth is no, right? And what's going on is that you're trying to do something that's impossible. Like you're trying to do too much. It's not a shortcoming of yours. It's that it literally can't be done. And part of what Elise talks about in the interview that's also in this book is like, you have to make some hard decisions, right? You have to hone in on what's really important. What are your priorities and what can go? That's very difficult to do. Yeah. And so I think you're getting to one of the themes that threads throughout her book, which is the importance of clarifying your values. What is important to you in the time and space that you're that you're living through? And what I thought, Debbie, might be kind of fun to leave listeners with is some exercises that you and I use in the therapy room and I'm guessing also for ourselves in clarifying values, because when you're feeling overwhelmed and and figuring out how to prioritize, it can start with figuring out like, what is the most important thing that you want to stand for? Yeah, we have talked a lot about values on this podcast. And I have an episode that I did a while back, episode 116 with Dr. Jenna Lejeune. And and we had a whole conversation about what values are and how to contact your values. What do you do, Yael, in your work with related to values? So I do an exercise where I have people kind of make contact with their future self. I say, you know, 30 years out, when you look back on this time, on this tough phase that you've been going through, what do you want to have stood for as a parent? Um, And And you could sort of ask that question as it relates to any domain of life, but in the parenting realm, that is really helpful to kind of specify, like in the domain of parenting, what will I feel proud of having stood for during this period? Another way that I sometimes ask it is, if your kids were watching you, what do you think they would be proud of you having stood for even as you're struggling? And if the kids are young, what do you want them to know when they grow up? about how you handled this difficult moment. So in all of these ways, it's sort of a variation of what is traditionally an acceptance and and commitment therapy eulogy exercise, which kind of gets you outside of the current moment and gives you a little bit of perspective so that you can really think more broadly about what are the kinds of things that feel important to you as you endure a rough patch of life. How about you, Debbie? What kinds of things do you do? Well, those are great exercises. So I do similar perspective taking exercises and those sort of existential types of exercises too. Um, I also sometimes have my clients do some writing about their values and we can link to a couple of, on the show notes today, a couple of handouts that have some values-based writing. I like the bullseye, which is a pretty common act one. So we can link to that for anyone who wants to check that out. Um, There's something I got from Jenna Lejeune, though. I don't think she talked about it on our podcast, but I've heard her speak about this and write about this in other areas, is this idea of, there's a metaphor of truffle hunting. You know how truffle pigs or truffle dogs will go around and try to sniff them out? One thing I do is I just try to sniff out the values um, when I find them. So if someone has this real sense of vitality, 
in their life or in a session with me, or even some bittersweetness or some pain or something. I think there's this quality that shows up when people are either really deeply connected to something that they care about or deeply disconnected from it. If there's longing, if there's regret, if there's shame. And so I think that's one thing I do is I'm just always attuned to it. And sometimes it's like, hold on, let's check this out. Is this, What does this indicate about what's important to you? And I think I try to do that in my life as well, like to notice moments when I really feel either attuned with my values or like way out of whack with my values. And then that always just helps me bring my actions more in line with the kind of person I want to be. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that exercise, the truffle hunting. I have to use that. Props to Jenna Lejeune for that one. That's a great, great metaphor. I hope that you enjoy this episode and get a lot out of the many on-the-ground strategies that Elise offers. Elise Dobrow-DeMarco is a clinical psychologist specializing in evidence-based practices for the treatment of anxiety and related conditions and in treating parents overwhelmed by the stressors of parenthood. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Parents.com, Motherwell, among many others, including her own blog, DrCBTMom.com. Her new book, Mom Brain, Proven Strategies to Fight the Anxiety, Guilt, and Overwhelming Emotions of Motherhood and Relax into Your New Self, offers evidence-based strategies to journey through motherhood. Welcome, Elise. Thank you so much for having me, Yael. I'm excited to have you back. So we've had Elise on previously in 2019. It was episode 86 while you were still working on the book. And at that time, it was pre-pandemic. And we had the chance to kind of talk about evidence-based practices that you draw from, how to apply it to overwhelming circumstances outside of our control. I definitely recommend that folks check out that first episode. It's amazingly relevant to even life today, but the book actually does a really good job of addressing more present circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's um, needless to say, the landscape has become a lot more stressful for moms uh, (laughs) post-COVID. So um, all of the anxiety, stress, et cetera, management strategies uh, in the book, I think, apply very well to our current circumstances. So I'm hoping today that we can cover additional broad ideas that we'll we'll try to not be too redundant with our first episode, Um, some broad ideas for coping with parenthood and motherhood, and also get into the weeds of some of the -the on-the-ground strategies that you talk about in the book. But I wanted to kind of start with some of the aims of the book um, and to ask you this kind of pointed question, which is why a book that focuses exclusively on moms, not on dads or parents more generally? So this was a discussion that I had very early on, um, interestingly, with my sister-in-law, who happens to work in children's publishing. So she kind of like was the first person I talked to about what what does it mean to write a book and what is writing a book? Um, And I remember talking to her at length and then later talking to, as as I was preparing the the book proposal, talking to the folks at, at Guilford, my publishing company as well about moms versus all parents. And there were a couple reasons why I focused on moms. The first reason was that it was very important to me that I include my own personal stories and experiences in the book. Um, I knew you know, from an early stage that part of what I wanted to do was share my anecdotes as I was also sharing you know, clinical vignettes. And all I had to draw from was my own experiences as a mom. So I, I felt like I couldn't necessarily speak to what it feels like to be a dad, right? Which is not to say that it's not similar to being a mom in many ways, but I didn't feel like I could, like I can't share my husband's stories, right? Um, And and so so that was part of it. Um, You know, I think part of it was, was also just 
trying to figure out, all right, how do we make this so it's not so general, right? Because when you get into like, here's a book to help all parents manage all of their stresses, like that is a huge undertaking. So again, I and like my publishing company later, we're talking about like, how do we make this a little more targeted and a little more specific? And like I said, between wanting to include my own stories, um, as well as wanting to be more specific, that's kind of how we landed on let's focus on the maternal experience and even let's focus on the maternal experience um, for mothers of kids ages zero to five. I'll say that the strategies in the book are evergreen. You can use them, whether you're a mom or a dad, you can use them at any stage in your kid's development. Um, But we focused it ages zero to five, like again, in part because otherwise it would become just an enormous undertaking and a lot to cover. Um, So anyway, so so hopefully that answers your question. That is why I made that call. Um, But it was something that we discussed a lot um, and went back and forth on. Yeah, it's nice to pick up a book that is really targeting your specific experience and because, you know, it's much more likely that the advice offered in it will be fitting. I will also say that as I was reading your book, I had the thought that moms and dads and really any kind of parent can read this and find benefit, if only understanding better, right? If you're not a mom, the experience of being a mom and some of the pressures mm-hmm. that traditionally moms do experience. And I also think that you offer, even though you're focused specifically on moms, you offer a real diversity of kinds of moms. I would like to point out that I've never read a book that had a case example with a character by the name of Yael. And I was very excited about it. Yes. No, but it's far more diverse than just Yael. But yeah, no, no, no. And I'm trying to remember Yael. Did I put that in or did the publisher put that in? And I can't recall. Um, And so I'd love to take credit for it, but I'm not sure if it was me or not. But, you know, I'll take credit for it. But there is something about reading stories. You know, you have same-sex couples, um, couples from different backgrounds. Like, it's clear that you tried hard to uh, help people to see themselves in the book. And, I, you know, just that experience of, like, I, I've never seen somebody called Yael in a book uh, for written for Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, good, good. Yeah. So I guess the other related question that I wanted to ask about sort of how you decided to target the book. I mean, we're clinical psychologists, but one of the things that I get a lot of pushback on when I write about, you know, working parenthood, the psychology of working parenthood is why are you talking about what is the responsibility of the individual rather than uh, targeting change at the societal infrastructure level? And I'm curious how you respond to that kind of criticism. So I, I address particularly in the work life section of the book. Um, straight away that um, we need societal changes. We need large-scale societal changes in the way we think about uh, women in work, men in work, paid leave, paternity leave, maternity leave. Uh, You know, CBT strategies are not going to solve those issues. Um, What they will do is help you in your own individual home as you are navigating life uh, can, you know, that, that continues to occur under these suboptimal circumstances for working women. Um, and so I don't make any claims that I'm going to solve this, this issue for everyone. It's just about, you know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed at the macro level. Here at the micro level in your own home, here are some things you can do to navigate these issues. Um, but it's a huge problem. And of course, COVID, you know, underscored the, the dis- discrepancies for women and men in the workforce, right? So you know, there's, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's a really important admission that like psychological practices aren't the end all be all. And even clinical psychologists, we don't believe that it's more that 
there are some things that you can do from the inside out level, and that's where clinical psychology is really helpful. And we also need that outside in, that top-down change to help support people, right? It isn't enough yeah, for us to be mindful or to think more effectively or to you know, engage in better coping strategies. We also need uh, society to change and to, to make progress in order for things to be easier and more tolerable for, for parents. Absolutely. No question. So let's talk about your title. Um, you know, mom brain is sort of this common term. And so I, I think, you know, you do a great job of defining it in your book. And I wonder if you can kind of share how you think about this term mom brain. Sure. Um, so I, I kind of have two answers to that. I can talk a little bit about the science of mom brain, and then I'll talk about why I picked it as the title of the book. So uh, one of the more ridiculous things is that the maternal brain has not been studied very much um, and has only really been studied more recently, which to me is crazy when you consider all of the changes that women undergo. And by the way, not even just, you know, women who become um, parents via pregnancy. These are moms who, who come to their children in other ways and even dads. Um, there's so much that happens in the brain during this transition. And so it's amazing. It's not been studied that much. Um, but recent studies have shown that there's actually structural and functional changes that the brain undergoes when we become mothers. Now, you know, pop culture in the media or whatever would tell us that mom brain is a deficit, right? It's like you become a mom and all of a sudden you like can't find your shoes and lose your cell phone all the time and forget everything. Um, but actually mom brain, it turns out is a real advantage because what these brain changes do is support caregiving, meaning basically uh, that your kids rise to the top of your mental priority list, right? Your kids become top of mind. Your brain makes sure of that, which is actually great, right? It makes sure that like you're caregiving appropriately. It makes sure you're focusing on your kids. Um, but what that also might mean is that other things fall lower on the mental priority list or maybe fall off altogether, right? So maybe that's like people's birthdays and where your phone is and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but I really do try to stress that mom brain is not a bad thing. Um, and this image of moms being like totally like brain fogged and addled and confused is really unfair um, and not true to what we know uh, actually occurs with moms. Um, not that we don't forget things and <laughs> not that we're not, you know, cognitively a little uh, foggy due to lack of sleep and other things, but it, it isn't the, the problematic condition that I think it's made out to be. In terms of why I chose it for the title of the book, um, full disclosure, one of my roommates from college came up with the title um, <laughs> years ago. Becky Silber, thank you once again. Um, <laughs> I, I, but I, I loved it and I chose it because I just thought that it encapsulated all of the many things that happen when we become mothers, right? So we're talking about huge emotional upheavals. We're talking about major increases in anxiety. We're talking about identity changes, changes in how you feel about work, relationship changes. So much is going on. And to me, mom brain kind of was a, a good shorthand to capture all of that. Um, so that's why I picked it as the title of the book. Yeah. Well, I, I love that. So I love that you share the science of, of the brain as we become caregivers, that it isn't that our mental acuity goes down. It's just that the prioritization of where we put our mental resources changes and that there's a there's a lot of taxing things that we need to address. And so maybe where the shoes are is lower down the priority list than making sure that your child, you know, isn't swallowing something dangerous. So right. your attention just shifts. But even though you 
point out that it isn't that our mental acuity goes down when we become parents, that there can be some reductions in how well we're able to focus and pay attention. And you offer some really useful tips. So I wonder if you could maybe leave our listeners with one or two tips for, you know, if you are tired, if you are just feeling kind of overwhelmed, what are some ways that you can uh, manage focus and attention in the meantime until things become more manageable for you? So I have a lot of thoughts on that. I I think the first piece is just managing your expectations of yourself, which I think is huge. Um, And really not expecting too much of yourself in those beginning days and weeks and months and frankly, years um, of motherhood. Because, you know, I have a graphic in the beginning of the book. It's an illustration of like the contents of my brain pre having my first son and post and like the pre has like, it's like a pie chart with like four sections. And it's like work, extended family, husband, like recreation and leisure. And then of course the second one post baby, it's like a million slices of the pie. And it's like, you know, did I put the sunscreen on my kid? Like, what am I packing for lunch today? Like, you know, why is there a Lego in my bag? Like all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so to me like that, it just sort of encapsulates what happens. And so first of all, again, I think there's an expectations issue where you have to expect that given all of the increased demands on your time, on your attention, on your energy, like you will not be able to do absolutely everything you want to do all the time um, or do things perhaps in the way you did them pre-kids. So some of it is expectation management. And then I think what's helpful is some of the like, I mean, yeah, you'll recognize this, but like the sort of old school, like cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral strategies for like time management and scheduling, which to me means things like um, every night before you go to bed, think through your schedule for the next day. And as you're doing that, have like an A list and a B list of like your to do's and the A list. And again, this is like old school CBT, right? The A list is like the stuff you must get done, whether related to work or your kids or your home. And the B list is like the stuff, yeah, it'd be great to get it done and you need to get it done, but like, it doesn't have to be done tomorrow. And when you're thinking the night before about your schedule for the next day, look at your schedule and make sure that the A list stuff is, is fit in there somewhere, right? So, you know, you're going to get that done and say, all right, I got this B list here. If I happen to have some found time tomorrow, great, I'll get to X. But otherwise, it stays on the B list until it needs to be moved to the A list or until I can get to it this weekend or whatever. Um, and the reason I really like that, again, is because I think you're, you're automatically, um, you know, when you're doing that, you're setting your expectations ahead of time. Like, this is realistically, given my day, given my kids, given my work, et cetera, and so forth, realistically, like, this is all I'm going to get to tomorrow. Um, so let me own that <laughs> and like leave the rest of the stuff on the B list. Um, so, so I think that is something that I encourage moms to do all the time. And I do with myself. Um, and then, you know, as far as the other stuff, I mean, I, I even have like um, stuff in the book about just like, uh, you know, the stuff we tell people who struggle with uh, memory for whatever reason, right? Things like find a central place to put your phone, <laughs> you know, and know that's where you always put your phone. I mean, you know, so so even like kind of memory aid stuff like that, um, that, that again, you would use for anybody who's having memory issues of whatever kind um, can be helpful when you're, you know, mentally overtaxed in the way that, you know, that moms are. Yeah. Well, I, I just love that you pull in some of those well-evidenced 
behavioral strategies to manage some of the overwhelm because they are really useful, right? They're useful, you know, if you have ADD, they're also useful if you're a mom who's functioning on like two hours of sleep. So yeah, putting those into practice and, and just knowing that, you know, there are those strategies to rely on when your brain can't do it all because it's otherwise taxed. I want to sort of use this as a little bit of a segue to talking about values. Values are a running theme throughout your book. You um, guide readers in how to clarify their values, but then also in how to um, work with them over time as things evolve. So I was hoping to sort of ask you like a little bit of a broad question of, of talking about how values change when we become parents and how you help people to clarify them. And then also, how do they change from when our kids are very small to to older? And how can parents be aware enough to continue to clarify them over time? Okay. So the first question was values, generally speaking, how do we have help moms articulate them? Okay. Um, Yes. So I, as you know, yeah, like this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, And, you know, I started doing a lot of values work as I started working with a lot of moms because it became very clear that due to the mom brain issues we've been discussing, a million demands on you, a million different priorities. Um, it, it, It can really be helpful to ask yourself, all right, what really matters to me? Let me figure out what really matters to me and then let me make choices about what I'm doing every day consistent with what really matters to me. Um, And I got particularly interested in values work around sort of identity, maternal identity issues, which I talk about. I did what a chapter two in the book. Um, This happened to me and it happened to so many of my patients where like I became a mother and all of a sudden like all I felt like was mom and all of the things that I had done prior to being a mom that really made me feel like myself. And in my case, that was like socializing with friends and like singing um, and like other stuff. Um, All of a sudden I wasn't doing and I like lost sight of who I was, right? And the things that mattered to me. And so um, based on that experience and hearing about patients with similar experiences, right? I thought, okay, well, what if we really think about what our values are and then use these values to set very specific goals to make sure that we are doing things that help us to feel like ourselves? and help us to honor what's important to us, right? And so what I ended up doing with the book is creating this values worksheet, right? Where moms can go through and articulate their values in a number of different domains. So it's like parenting and work and recreation and leisure and like a whole bunch of things. Um, And then I kind of instruct moms on how to use those values to create very specific goals. Um, And what I have found in my own life and with my patients as well is that when you set value-specific goals, you start to feel like yourself again um, because you are honoring those things that are most important to you. So I'll use kind of like a a classic example because I've had a lot of patients in this situation. Um, I worked at, have worked and do work with a lot of women who like previous to babies were very like athletic and into working out and stuff. And then of course had babies and were like, I I can barely get out of my bed. (laughs) Like, how am I supposed to do this? Um, And so, you know, I talked to these moms about, okay, like, obviously you value exercise. You may not be able to exercise in the way that you did before. You can't spontaneously go out for a run now. You can't spend several hours at the gym, right? But let's talk about, because you value exercise, let's make a specific plan for how you will be able to exercise in a given week. And so we get really granular about it. Like, Okay, so on Wednesdays, when your kid is napping, can you get on the Peloton app for 20 minutes? <laughs> you know, and, and as we're making, I talked about making schedules um, for the night before, like I will tell moms, like, put these sort of values based um, plan activities in your schedule for the next day so that you're making sure to do them, right? And so this is how somebody who really wants to work out 
finds that they can make a little time and space for working out. It just requires thinking creatively and planning ahead. I'll just sort of just to sort of emphasize this point, because I think it's such a good one, which is that, you know, clarifying your values, sometimes the values change and sometimes they don't. And sometimes even realizing that that's a core part of who you are, who you want to represent, but how it manifests might have to change. In other words, like the, the actions associated with that value might have to be modified in creative ways to fit them in realistically is, is an important piece. So, you know, figuring out like, is that still an important part of who I am? And then given the constraints of life or or just like the different way that life looks and feels, how do I fit that in um, so that I can show up as my whole self, even though, you know, my pie looks very different is a really important part of what you do. For sure. And and to answer the second part of the question, right, which was talking about kind of like how values change. um, And I write about this in the book, how it's really important to remember that what you value when your kids are small can, can really shift. Um, and, and I can speak to my own personal experience in this in terms of work values, where when my kids were very little, um, I did not value my work as much, honestly. Um, I kind of did the bare minimum. <laughs> um, and I, I was not uh, particularly ambitious at that time. And you know, succeeding in work. And, um, you know, I wasn't writing at that time. I, I you know, I, I it would, was just not something I valued. And then of course, as my kids got older and started to be in sort of fuller day school and all of that, I started to feel like, wow, you know, I actually want to re-engage more with my career. Right. And that was a very deliberate choice that I made. Um, and I think it all just boils down to it. And it's funny, it's not even just about values. I think generally speaking, it really helps like every six months to just sort of take stock of your values and also like kind of just what your day-to-day is looking like because there's so many changes that can happen Um, just within six months, right? As your kids are getting older, things change, circumstances change. And so it really is important, I think, just to like every six months. and, And you know what? I've said this to patients before. I'm like, I don't know, maybe you do it like at the new year and then like mid-year, but basically taking stock, you know, twice a year um, and more if you can, but if you can't, like that's an easy thing to remember, like twice a year, just kind of take stock and ask yourself like, okay, do I feel like I'm living life according to my values right now? Do I feel like I'm working on values-based goals? Um, And if you feel like you've kind of fallen off of that or your values have changed, it's a really good time to just re-engage. And as I say in the book, I'm like, you could fill out this values worksheet every six months and have different answers. And I've had patients do that all the time. Like, so they'll, so we'll do values work and we'll go on, you know, with whatever. And then like six months, eight months later, we'll talk about doing values work again (laughs) because maybe they've gone back to work in the interim. Maybe their kids have gotten older and have kind of passed to a different developmental stage. Like, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's important to not get um, stuck in, you know, a, a single way of doing things and assume that it's always going to be that way, right? Because so much change happens to you, to your kids, to the outside environment. Obviously, COVID taught us that. Um, things can change very dramatically, very quickly. Um, so it's important to always reevaluate. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. The thing that I want to talk to in the value space is this piece of social comparison, because I think that sometimes how we engage in parenthood gets juxtaposed with how other people in our social circle are doing it. I had this recent experience where I went away with two of my best girlfriends from college who I just adore, and we've been friends for, well, a lot of years. I won't name the number, but it's a lot. (laughs) Um, But it was so interesting because, you know, these are the kind of friends that we, you know, we we talk about silly, superficial things, but we really get into the the deep nitty gritty. And for all of us, you know, parenting is such an important part of who we are and, and, and you know, how we want to show up in the world is as really committed, loving mothers. But it looks really different. And so as we were going through our weekend together, it was just really fascinating that we really value different things. And I think the idea that values can really differ between people and it's not right or wrong, it's just different, really helps me when, for example, and this was actually something you and I had talked about when you came on in 2019, when I sort of point out like, I'm really not into hosting or attending parties. birthday parties, yeah. Yeah, and for them, it really (laughs) is. It's a way to engage in their social environment, to help their kids engage socially and learn those skills. And for me, you know, it's not that social engagement is unimportant. It's just that's not the way that I want to do it because parties and and sort of larger social gatherings are not something I value very strongly. And it's just different. But I think it's sort of an important point that values can really different, differ between parents. But there's this social environment of mothering where judgment is such a part of it. And, and I think that can really creep in to clarify into the space where we're clarifying our values. So I'm wondering what kind of recommendations you give to mothers in that space to sort of unhook from, you know, allowing the fears of judgment from others to dictate what we value. Yeah. I mean, social comparison is such a problem for moms and became, I think, even worse during the pandemic um, because we were all confined to social media, like pretty much exclusively for a while there. And so we're just really comparing ourselves to other, you know, moms on social media. Um, so I I like that you mentioned values here, because I think that's a a big, important part of dealing with comparison making is asking yourself, who is this person to whom I'm comparing myself and do they share values with me? Um, and I think it's a critical question because if a person doesn't share your values, they're not a relevant point of comparison as far as I'm concerned. So like, for example, um, you know, I talk about this often because I, it's a, sort of the classic example of this, but I um, will frequently have conversations with patients that go something like, oh my gosh, you know, my neighbor just did like X, Y, and Z for her kids. Um, and that was so amazing. And I'm so jealous and I'm a bad mom and blah, 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 blah. 
And my next question will be, oh, can you tell me a little bit about your neighbor? What's she like? And honestly, like nine times out of 10, my patient's like, oh, I can't stand her. She's terrible. You know, and she'll go on this whole thing. I don't like her. I don't like her kids. I'm like, but and so I'm like, okay, well, hang, hang on then. You know, if you don't uh, respect her opinions, if you don't share her values, very clear, you guys have very different values around this. How is she a, an appropriate target for comparison for you? Right. If, if you don't value her opinions, like, um, you know, it, it, I, I use the analogy of like, it, it's, it's like, finding a doctor and looking at that doctor's credentials and thinking that that doctor is a quack, but then following that doctor's medical advice anyway. <laughs> like to me, it's akin to that, where if, if someone doesn't share your, your values and, and doesn't seem to come from a similar space you know, than you do, they're not an effective point of comparison. And, and what I always urge moms to do is like, try to find, and we might've talked about this two, you know, two years ago when we spoke, but like try to find mom's who are fair comparison targets, meaning kind of share your values, um, you know, people whose advice you really respect, you know, all the better if they're people who have kids who are slightly older than your kids, because then they've just gone through what you're about to go through, right? And they can really give you, you know, all the info that you need. Um, but I really try to encourage moms as an, as an antidote to all of the comparing that's happening with celebrity moms or momfluencers, as they're calling them now, right? And like random friends on Facebook you haven't seen since eighth grade, like as an antidote to that, really consider choosing a couple of moms uh, to actively compare yourself with and, and, you know, and, and to solicit advice from. And I think that's really the way, the way to go. And, and again, I devote a whole chapter in the book to comparison making because it's such a huge issue. And like I said, even more so now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, that, you know, just to sort of make this point, I, I think that you can, you know, unhook from comparing yourself to moms, you know, who you either don't respect or just don't agree with, but also moms that you really adore can have different values than you too. Yep. I mean, if my, my two friends and I are, and are a good example of that, um, you know, in some areas we really align, like, um, you know, we all really care about healthy food for our kids, but in some ways we really differ, you know, like thank you cards and hosting birthday parties. And it's, it's okay to have different values. I, I really like to just make the point that, you know, there's no value, generally speaking, that's bad. They're just different. And we can't all value everything at the same time. That's just not possible in any world. You have to f pick a few that are really priorities to you. And then by necessity, like the rest are going to be lower down the priority list. It just has to be that way. For sure. And I think it's a really good way, um, just in general, like I, you know, I've, I've talked with moms a lot about conflicts with other moms over issues with kids and stuff like that. And I think um, having the mindset of, it's not that she's right and I'm wrong or vice versa. It's just that we have different values and we're coming at this with our different value systems in place, right? It, it goes a long way to help moms kind of navigate through conflicts with other moms. Just that, you know, that reminder that it's not about right and wrong. And it's, you know, it, it, as you're saying, Yael, it's not about like the most important thing is to prioritize eating versus sleeping versus birthday parties versus whatever. It's just that different people are prioritizing different things. I mean, like you, I don't prioritize birthday parties. I don't prioritize craftiness. I'm like a disaster when it comes to like Pinterest and all that stuff, you know, whereas I know, I know like my sister-in-law throws these like elaborate, amazing birthday parties that are super crafty. And I'm like, well, this is awesome. But like, this is never going to happen at my house. Um, <laughs> and neither of us is right or wrong, right? It's just a question of what we, what we value and what we want to devote our time to. 
Yeah. And I bet music is a dominant theme in your house, given your love of musical theater. And my children and I, well, maybe they have talent, but it will never be nurtured because I don't have talent. talent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Lots of singing in my house. Lots of singing for sure. Well, I'd want to come and listen at your house. You wouldn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) It's mostly Hamilton. It's mostly someone in my family singing Hamilton, which I think probably doesn't distinguish me from like every other house in America, but... I love it. So I was I was actually going to move us to talking about anxiety next, but because we're talking about conflict, I actually want to turn the conversation to talking about partner relationships and your tips there, because I think they're so good. So what are your tips on conversations, right? Keeping in mind that, you know, different people come at conversations and agendas with just really different perspectives. But for a lot of couples with really young kids, you know, we we get to the point where we're like literally ready to divorce our partner. And just to point out here, Gottman's rec- John Gottman, who's a prominent marital researcher, recommends, you know, divorce should not be approached from the first year that you have a baby because you're just so overwhelmed. It's hard to make really good, clear, well thought out decisions in general. Um, but what are some of your tips for approaching that kind of conflict? Because if you have a partner and you're raising a family and you're so taxed, um, we do need some good tips in hand of how to navigate that close relationship. Yeah, it's it, the partner stuff is is tough, right? Because you know, I, I I share a vignette in the book where I talk about a baby as the the bombs dropped on our marriage, right? This particular couple in the vignette, but I think that's true for all of us to some extent, right? Is it just it it changes the dynamic in a really fundamental way. So I'll share a couple of the tips and then I have a, a chapter on it too, like kind of chock full of them. Yeah. The first thing that I, I always emphasize is like the need for FaceTime. I don't mean FaceTime on like an iPhone. I mean like actual, <laughs> actual FaceTime. FaceTime. Right. Where like IRL. <laughs> members totally of the couple devote some time and depending on your circumstances, it could be once a week, it could be twice a week, it could be three times a week, but have protected time where they are planning to sit down and just talk to each other. And this sounds really simple, but it is not because when you have a small child and you are like two ships passing in the night, right? And communication often gets lost um, and you don't have the opportunity to sit down and talk things through a consequence of which is that, you know, something happens and no one has time to talk about it. And then it kind of blows up and becomes a much bigger thing than it actually is. And so on and so forth. I think just getting some FaceTime with your partner when the kid is not around can really, really help things. And the FaceTime, as I say in the book, can be lots of different things. Like it can be talking through an issue. It can be like logistics of of who is taking the kid where at what time. It can be like a recap of the reality show you binged the other night. Like it, it it doesn't have to be a heady conversation. Sometimes it is, but it doesn't have to be. So to me, that's like the first thing. Like you gotta build in that FaceTime Find time for it, protect that time, and always use it. Um, John Gottman, actually, you mentioned him, talks about having a quote unquote state of the union, uh, which I've always thought that that name is funny, right? And that's basically the idea that you're like coming together for this state of the union on a regular basis. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing I talk about a lot in uh, it, not only the couples chapter, but also in the chapter about friends and about extended family is uh, using a strategy from dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which is an offshoot of CBT called Dear Man. Um, And Dear Man is basically an assertiveness strategy um, and a way to ask for what you need 
um, in a really productive way. And I love it. I talk about it so much in, in the book. Um, and I, I, I won't go through, it's an acronym. I won't go through the whole acronym, but I'll call out a couple of parts of it that I think are really critical. One part of it, well, I, I should say a precondition of Dear Man is that if you are really, really agitated or really upset or feeling really emotional or what we say in DBT, in, in emotion mind, that is not the time to go Dear Man your partner. That is the time to say to your partner, hey, I need to cool down. Let's, you know, meet about this later. Let's talk about this tonight. Let's talk about this at our FaceTime, whatever it is, right? So first of all, do not, dear man, when you are really worked up or in emotion mind, as they say in DBT. So that's, you got to throw that out there. Um, and, and, you know, partly what can be helpful with dear man is actually planning ahead of time how you want to make your dear man appeal, right? So you need to give yourself some time and space to do that. Um, but what I'll call out as specific things in Dear Man that I think are really useful. The first thing is uh, the E in Dear Man, um, which is basically to um, express how you are feeling about the situation. Um, and what I'll talk about when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about validation um, and the idea of, of really just trying to articulate where you are coming from, from your own specific end of things. So one of the things that is often a problem when couples fight, right, is finger pointing. You're doing this, you're doing that, you, 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 right? And all that does is inspire defensiveness in the other person. I didn't do that, you did this, right? And then people get stuck. Instead, if you really put things in terms of yourself and the way you are feeling, the person can't argue with that, right? So if you say, you know, I... Um, I think that one of the examples I use in the book is like a, a mother-in-law example, right? Like I feel really frustrated when your mom shows up at the house unannounced and I have to kind of make dinner for her and like set the, you know, sort of set the, put the red carpet out for her, you know, as opposed to being like, why do you always let your mom come whenever she wants? <laughs> right. Or another example I think I, that I use in the book too is like, um, oh my God, how could you let our daughter go on that age inappropriate slide? What do you want to do? Kill her? As opposed to, you know, I get really nervous when she's going on playground equipment that's meant for older kids because she's, you know, she's so rambunctious and I'm afraid she's going to hurt herself. Right. So putting it in terms of you and your feelings, as opposed to the other person and what they're doing wrong can get you very, very far. Um, and then another piece in Dear Man that's important is, is, is asking directly for what you need. This is also like a theme of the entire book, right? Not wishy-washy, not I need some more help asking directly and assertively for what it is you need from the other person. Um, and then the R part in Dear Man reinforced telling the other person how giving you what you need is going to benefit them. <laughs> it's always a really good strategy, right? So like, you know, for the mother-in-law thing, it could be like, you know, if we if we make set times for your mom to come and visit, I will feel so much less stressed. Um, you know, wondering whether not having to wonder whether she's going to show up or not, and frankly, that's going to put me in a much better mood, and I think I'll be much more pleasant to live with, right? Like that's that is that's reinforcing, right? So if you give me what I want, like here's a benefit for you. I'm not going to go around, you know, screaming and throwing things every time your mom leaves. Um, so I'll, I'll call out just those pieces of dear man. It's again, it's it's a longer acronym that I'm sharing, but I think those are some of the highlights that are really important to keep in mind with uh, with arguing uh, with, with your partner. 
Yeah, I think that's so effective. Debbie and I actually did an entire episode devoted to navigating relationships when you have young kids. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes because this is such an important um, domain and it is so full of complexity. And your chapter gives so like you have Dear Man, but you have a whole host of other really awesome strategies. But one question that I wanted to put to you is, you know, how do you respond when somebody, when a client of yours says, but what about when your partner really is a jerk or putting your kids in danger? And I think that slide example is a really good one because I think the impulse is, no, but I don't need to like couch it carefully and, you know, make sure that I'm not hurting my partner's feelings or not putting them on the defense when there's something really on the line. Then I just need to sort of get in there as quickly as possible and put a stop to it. And so I have my own response in session, but I'm curious what your response is. Because um, that comes up a lot for people. Yeah. I mean, my response is if it's if it's a question of danger and imminent danger or threat to kid, oh, address it now. <laughs> like there is no question about about that, right? Absolutely. You never, you know, if you feel like your partner is doing something like in the slide example, were you to see this happening and were it like a really dangerous, perilous slide, oh yeah, run over, rescue your kid, like put an end to that for sure. Um, so I think... You know, you know, I think some of this is going to sound funny, um, but I think you you want to you don't want to be screaming at your partner for everything all the time because then your message gets lost. If, on the other hand, you reserve the screaming <laughs> for those times when it is bad things are going on and you really need to address them quickly, your partner will be far more likely to hear you than if you're screaming about all stuff in that way. And what I'll tell you, yeah, I don't know if you have this experience, but I've had the experience with a lot of moms I've worked with where like every issue with their partner becomes a screaming issue. Every issue, you know, why didn't you pack so-and-so in their lunch? Why did you know? And, and when that happens, the partner hears nothing of the content that you're saying and only hears, oh no, here she goes again, <laughs> you know? And, and you don't want that, right? You don't want your partner to tune you out. And so to me, I think it becomes, yeah, sometimes you we all scream. Sometimes you scream. And sometimes there are situations in which, again, if, if it's a dangerous situation or if your partner's being a real jerk, like you want to let them know in the moment that that's happening, right? Um, but again, you don't want to water down your message by always reacting in that way. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. That That's my take on it. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. And um, I I think it kind of goes alongside a parenting tip, right? Which is that you don't want to be constantly nagging at your kids yeah. because then they tune you out, right? It's much more effective to give feedback if you pick your battles. Um, and I think it really is a question of effectiveness, right? If something is really important and you need to say something, what's going to be the most effective strategy? Is it kind of jumping in or is it you know, biding your time and, and picking your language and the moment where your partner is more open to hearing. And of course, you know, the situation matters too, as you're saying, like if there's something really imminently dangerous that's happening, you need to take action. But if it's something that's really bothersome and that you could see, you know, over time, this could be a problem, then you might want to take a pause, think about that dear man strategy and approach it with the highest effectiveness that you can and, and not too often so that the message gets across. Yeah. 
Um, this kind of gets to the other conversation about anxiety, which is kind of big stuff versus small stuff worries and how to distinguish between the two of them. So you make this distinction in your book, and I wonder if you can talk about like what is small stuff versus big stuff, and then how can people tell the difference? Yeah, yeah. So um, I came up with that because I, you know, there are so many strategies that we have in CBT for managing anxiety, um, and some of them work better in certain circumstances versus others. And one of the things that I started to see in my clinical work is that like there were very different kinds of, there were different kinds of worries that, that uh, my patients were experiencing. So the big stuff is like national, international threats and worries, right? So we're talking about COVID, although COVID is, is a funny mix of a big stuff and a small stuff worry, which I can talk about in a minute if you'd like. Um, okay. But we're talking about things like, you know, pandemics and cataclysmic weather events and uh, school violence, uh, political upheaval, you know, these things are big stuff worries. Small stuff worries are not small in significance, meaning they're they're absolutely, you know, can be as difficult to manage as the big stuff, but they're worries that uh, revolve around our day-to-day life, right? Will my kid ever sleep through the night? Uh, will my kid ever eat this solid food? What if my kid doesn't get into the daycare I want? Uh, that kind of stuff. You know, what if this mom at drop-off doesn't like me? Uh, that kind of stuff. Like, those are small stuff worries. And again, not small in significance, just small in that they relate more to, like, our personal world. Um, so there's a distinction there. And then there's also a distinction of whether or not these worries have evidence to support them, which you alluded to earlier, right? Um, and it tends to be that the big stuff worries have ample evidence to support them, right? Like when COVID hit, yeah, it made sense to worry about our health, right? To, to me, it makes a lot of sense to worry about climate change. It makes a lot of sense to worry about violence and gun violence, right? These are our worries that we have evidence for, right? And there are some, you know, quote unquote, small stuff worries too that we have evidence for. So say there's someone in your family who is significantly ill, right? Um, and it makes absolute sense that you are worried about this. There is evidence that they are significantly ill, right? So it's only small stuff and that it applies just to your world. Um, but there is evidence for that, right? Now, there are other small stuff worries and, and even some big stuff worries too, depending on how you look at them, which is where COVID was an interesting mix of these two things, um, where there's not evidence to support them, where, where, where we're talking about what we would have called in CBT years ago, irrational fears, um, and these are worries uh, that where there's not much evidence to support them. Um, so, for example, it might be, I don't know, um, a mom doesn't say hi to you at drop off and you're convinced that the mom hates you without any evidence to suggest that's true. Right. And of course, many possible alternative explanations like she was distracted. She was on her phone. She's having a bad day, you know, whatever it is. Um, and there's a lot of worries that people have, too, that just don't have evidence to support them. And so depending on the kind of worry, you want to sort of tailor your anxiety management strategy. So for worries that don't have much evidence to support them, you want to use what we call cognitive restructuring, which is basically taking a look at our worry and stepping back and asking ourselves, what is the evidence to suggest that what I'm worried about is going to come to pass? And what is the evidence that it's not? Um, and a kind of related tactic, which is to ask yourself, all right, what's the worst case scenario? And what would I do to manage it? I love that question for small stuff worries. Um, not all of them, but the ones that relate to you know, kids, um, issues with school and issues with friends and all that kind of stuff to really ask yourself, all right, what is the worst thing that could happen here? And what, what would I do to manage it? Like, okay, so my kid doesn't get put in the daycare we want for them. Like, 
what is this going to mean for the rest of their lives? <laughs> you know, um, so just being able to to ask yourself that can be helpful. So anyway, so that's the cognitive stuff. Um, and then also for some of the worries that don't have a tremendous amount of evidence, we use a lot of behavioral strategies. Um, and I talk a lot about exposure therapy in the book, which basically boils down to when you are avoidant of something and anxious about something um, that is is not clearly a threat, working to expose yourself to that thing, right? Now, the funny thing about COVID, um, and Yael and I were talking before we started recording about this, is that I have a whole chapter on managing fears about illness and injury and threats. And pre-COVID, I talked about exposure, and I said, um, I talked about an exposure that I've done often with moms who were afraid of germs and their kids getting sick, which was like, go to the pediatrician's room and touch everything in the waiting room <laughs> and touch all the pens and all the toys. COVID hit. And I was like, nope, can't do that anymore. So I was very fortunate that I could revise. I was able to revise that part of the book uh, in the wake of COVID where like, it turned out that actually doing some of the exposures now might be dangerous. And so I had to modify my, my thoughts on that a little bit. Um, but basically with exposures, right, it, it's um, putting yourself in situations um, to show yourself that you can manage the anxiety around those situations, right? Whether they be um, a situation in which like illness transmission is not very likely, you know, getting yourself back out socializing in a safe way again with COVID. I mean, there's a million things you could do exposure for. And then with the, the bigger stuff worries, I think mindfulness and acceptance strategies are really what you need to lean on, right? Which is just being compassionate towards yourself for what you're feeling, recognizing that the anxiety makes sense and is reasonable, um, and then trying to think through, okay, well, in some small way, is there something I can do to help myself with this? That's not going to solve this anxiety. That's not going to solve this problem, but can maybe at least make me feel empowered and activated, which can just really help with anxiety in general. So that's a lot of what I talked to patients about in the beginning with COVID, right? Yeah. Because goodness, I mean, there was a lot we could not do and a lot of anxiety, which was totally reasonable and a lot of stuff to accept. But then in some small ways, like I, I can actually speak to a personal experience where like down the street from my house is a church where they started collecting food um, and it was like a, like anytime you could drop off, there's like a little shed in the parking lot and you could drop off food at any time, day or night uh, for families in town in need during the pandemic. And my sons and I just started walking food over there like once or twice a week. It's not, you know, like a couple of cans of things or whatever. And that made a huge difference. Like it was a small thing. And did it cure COVID? No. Did it alleviate my anxiety about my family getting COVID? No. But it helped me feel like I was doing something and it helped me feel activated and that helped. Um, so again, with the big stuff, I think it's it's being you know compassionate towards yourself and mindful of what you're feeling, and at the same time trying to figure out like is there any way, and even in a small way, that I can make some change that will help me sit with this a little better. Yeah, yeah, I love that balance of acceptance and then finding some kind of action that's value aligned that you can engage in to sort of help uh, tolerate and, and that both help tolerate anxiety. And I also think that the point that you can still approach things and do sort of some modified version of exposure and, and not allow your life to exclusively restrict when there's something like a pandemic going on is a really good point. And I love the the psychological flexibility that you showed in your book of, of really, you know, sort of modifying some of those uh, strategies and suggestions in the wake of this pandemic. And I think that shows that, you know, CBT and, and the related treatment approaches are really, they can be tailored to the circumstances. 
Yeah. And I think that's true in general, like with the book, I mean, CBT was not designed to help moms, you know, it was designed for specific diagnoses. And I just found in my practice and starting to work with a lot of, a lot of moms that it could be adapted really nicely, um, to help moms with, you know, all of the stuff that they were struggling with. Yeah. And I, I, at least I think we could probably chat for hours, but moms probably wouldn't have time for that, but (laughs) folks please should check out the book. And I will say, and you, you say this in the introduction, like it's written in a way that you can sort of dip in and out in a short span of time, because if you have young kids, you're not going to have a whole lot of reading time, but there's, um, strategies in, in there to deal with perfectionism, taking care of yourself, even while you have young kids coping with social media, fitting in friendship how to break up with friends who are no longer serving you, which I thought was awesome. Surviving um, yeah. and maybe even being creative about having fun on vacations and holidays when you have young kids and so much more. So I just want to make a huge pitch for the book. Elise's writing is personal, so so relatable, dripping with empathy, and is also so damn funny and science-based, which is my favorite combination of attributes. So I definitely recommend getting it for yourself and for your mom friends because it's a book that really is a powerful set of tools to have when you are a mom with young kids. And we'll, um, in the show notes, link to your your blog, drcbtmom.com, which you can um, link out to Elise's other writing. Um, and then you, you can find her book through our website or through hers. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Yael. It's such a pleasure because you are my friend, um, in addition to a colleague that I really respect. So it's always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.